Well, good morning. Uh, great, great to be here. Uh, let me just begin by saying a thank you. Uh, this past December, one of the weeks over the Advent giving campaign, you guys generously raised money, as, as Matt said, to Christ City, Surrey. You raised seven and a half thousand plus dollars. And that's a, a huge blessing. Um, one of the things you know, I, I pray into and I just, I, I trust that the Lord is, is leading me into this. And yet part of that prayer is to, Lord, would you con- continue to affirm this calling? And then to, to then see churches such as yourselves and, and others, again, give generously. It just makes me go, maybe this is not just a me thing, this is a God thing. Um, so thank you. Thank you for being a part of this work. And I, I do pray that many would come to know Jesus and we'd be surrounded by so many in, in heaven who, who heard about him because of this work. So thank you for that. Um, if you have your Bible now, I do invite you to grab it, open it up. Hosea chapter 10 is where we're going to be this morning. We're continuing in our series in Hosea. And so let me read it for us, um, and then we'll jump right in. Hosea 10, 1 to 8. This is God's word for us this morning. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. And now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words. With empty oaths, they make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of beth Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests, those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as a tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars. And they shall say to the mountain, cover us and to the hills fall on us. To think of France is to think of Louis XIV. Louis was crowned king at the age of five. He reigned from 1643 to 1715, a span of 72 years. He is considered one of, if not the greatest king Europe has ever seen. He ruled France when France was the world superpower of its day. It was Louis who unified various religious factions, brought economic prosperity, strengthened the borders, and brought people peace. And under his reign, all feared France. When questioned how he was ruling the state, he responded, I am the state. I am France. He lived in the Palace of Versailles, the greatest construction project of that century. He was attended to by over 4,000 servants. His nicknames are Louis the Great, Louis the Grand Monarch, and the Sun King, because the world revolved around him. When he died, his funeral was held at the Cathedral of Notre Dame. Thousands packed into that cathedral, many mourning, many with great anxiety. What, what would now come of France? What happens to all those things we held so dear? Uh, Louis's coffin was inlaid with gold. And beside the coffin, there was a single candle. That candle was to bounce off of the gold of his coffin and give light for all to see in that place. Well, Bishop Maslin, he's giving the sermon at Louis' sermon. He walks up, he snuffs out the candle and says, only God is great. Today, 
as in the day of France, as in the day of Hosea, we have these longings, these desires, these uh, things we hold so dear. We, we want safety. We want peace and justice. We want a life that has meaning and value and, and purpose. We want to be known and we want to know. We want to be loved and we want to love. We want to experience all of life's good pleasures. And those desires we have motivate us to, to live a certain way. Or they cause us to place our hope in certain things, in some power, something, some person. Maybe that's us. And while these sources that give us life have some sort of inherent meaning and value and ability, they cannot ultimately carry the weight of your soul. They may appear to momentarily provide what you long for, but they will ultimately fail you. Only God is great. And so Hosea this morning, he is going to call out the things Israel has falsely put their hope in. One by one, he's going to snuff out their candles. Don't put your trust in this thing. Don't put your trust in this thing. This thing will also fail you. And he's going to point us to the one who actually can save us. So this morning, here is my outline. Um, The impotence of money, the impotence of monarch, and the impotence of merit. And then I'm going to give you one M at the end. Uh, my wife is a nerd. She said, this way she said, uh, three M's and one M to rule them all. Uh, ready? Okay. It, first, the impotence of money. Look at verse one. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. This, uh, This language of being a luxuriant vine is speaking about the the fertility or just the growth that is happening in the fields, right? The the plants are growing. The the vines are are expanding. And because Israel is an agrarian society, as go the fields, so goes the wallet, right? Green in the fields is, is green in the wallet, right? If there's plants that are growing, that means you have food to eat, means you have food to trade, means your uh, cattle have plants to eat, and then you get to also eat your cattle that eat the plants in the field, right? This, this, is, this is a time of prosperity in Israel. There's this general improvement. And yet, Hosea says, Israel, you need to know you're actually in a more precarious condition than you were before. You're in a more dangerous position than you were before. He says... Verse 1, the more altars he built, as his country improved, his pillars, he improved his pillars, but he says their heart is false and now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. This language of building altars, that's not a a means of instrument or a means of worshiping God. Those altars were, were a means of worshiping a false god. See, see, their money had actually drawn them further away or pulled them further away from the one true God who gave them that luxuriant vine. And, and money can do this. It has the power to, to pull us away from our one true God. Um, in his book, Screwtape Letters, uh, C.S. Lewis speaks, uh, he speaks from the percept, uh, kind of the side of an older demon speaking to a younger demon. This older demon is instructing this younger demon as to how he might destroy Christians and and keep them away from following God. And so he writes this. This is during a time of of war. He says, do you not realize that the patient, that's this Christian that they're trying to destroy, do you not realize that the patient's death at this moment is precisely what we do not, what we want to avoid? He is daily increasing in conscious dependence on the enemy. He, he's loving God. God is that enemy this demon is talking about. He will almost certainly be lost to us if he is killed tonight. But if only he can be kept alive, 
The long, dull, monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity are excellent campaigning weather. You see, if the middle years prove prosperous, our position is even stronger. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. His increasing reputation, his widening circle of acquaintances, his sense of importance, the growing pressure of absorbing and agreeable work, build him up in a sense of being really at home in earth, which is just what we want. Uh, Money has the ability to make us feel like we're in control. Like we're finally finding our place in this world. Like we got a grasp on life, right? If I have enough money, then I get to control what happens in the future. I feel safe. I get to decide what other people do for me. I get to give people uh, that I love what they want. And I also get to enjoy what I want. And what this control does is it causes us to want to replace God. Slowly, we, we push God out of the picture and we go, God, I, I got this. Run along now. And Hosea says, though, doing that is actually deceiving ourselves. In, in verse 2, he says, their heart is false. That, that word false there is literally the word smooth or slippery. It's like we feel, I finally grabbed a hold of life. It's all under my grasp. And Hosea says, no, it's actually going to just slip out of your hands. Money, it doesn't ultimately put you in a place of control. And so, look at what happens. He says, their altars will be broken down. The Lord will break down their altars, verse 2, and destroy their pillars. Verse 8, the high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on the altars. This idea of thorn and thistle growing on the altars implies no one's there to pluck the weeds anymore. It's not just Israel, or it's not just the altars that will be destroyed. It's Israel that will be destroyed. If you go to Chernobyl today, where they had the, the site of the nuclear disaster, what do you, you know what you see there? You see a forest. You see greenery and wildlife everywhere. It used to be a concrete jungle. But the place is destroyed now. No one lives there. So you have life. So you have thorns and thistles growing on altars. Which is exactly what happened. In 722 BC, Assyria came in and destroyed Israel. No more. Those 11 tribes are lost. Money does not save. Now, please hear this. Uh, Money is not bad. Money is not bad. Inherent to money is no evil, right? There are plenty of wealthy people in the Bible, men and women. Job, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, the man who gave Jesus his tomb to be buried in. All of them were incredibly wealthy. But there is a danger to money. Um, Listen to Deuteronomy 8. Take care, Moses says, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your hearts be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, I know our thought in this moment is to go, I'm the exception though. Because that's what I feel, right? I I hear this warning of danger and I go, okay, but it's not totally wrong. And so I go, I can probably be the one to figure it out. Money's probably not, not an issue to me. And maybe it isn't. Maybe, maybe you can handle a lot of money. Money. I, I would just ask you, please, evaluate your motives. It, it may be that you're not turning to money for control, for safety, but it may be that you're looking to money to satisfy you, to bring you extra joy and, and happiness. The reality is that too will fail you. We are the wealthiest we have ever been. Since the year 1972, our income per capita has more than doubled. 
And yet, our happiness level is statistically shown to be the same. Research shows that as our income increases, it's possible to have a sense of, uh, of being better off. Right? I feel like life is better. We would tick on a survey. But then if you ask those same people their emotional well-being, they're no better, if not worse. Again, money is not bad, but please do not look to money to satisfy you or to give you security. Money is not bad. It is just a bad God. It cannot save you. Secondly, then, the impotence of monarch, of monarch. Look, look at verse three. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? And then verse seven reads, Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. In Israel, a, a king was much more than a symbolic figurehead. The king was the true leader of the nation. It was the king's job to take care of the nation's economy. He would set up a certain tax level. He would be responsible for expanding the borders, which meant getting more land, which means having more money. He's responsible for, for trade negotiations. The, the king's job was also to take care of the nation physically responsible for their safety. It was, the military was under his control. And most importantly, though, the king was responsible for justice. For justice. You see, in Israel, every year, it was the king's job to read the first five books of the Old Testament. The Torah, it's called. Literally, the law. And he was supposed to look at those uh, books and, and come to understand who God is and then establish rules and regulations based on that. He, he was supposed to take care of the nation. He was supposed to punish evil, protect the marginalized and care for the hurting. He's supposed to put system in place that increase the well-being of the nation. Now, I know today we do not have a king. I mean, we do have a king but no one really knows his name. I don't even know his name. I asked the first uh, service. They had no idea. Is it Charles? William? Harry? Actually, who, what's his name? Does anyone know? See, don't judge me. You don't even know their name. You, we, we, don't, we have a king, but we don't really have a king. But we have a government. Right? And we, I think our government, in many ways, has replaced the, the job of a king. Now, now the Bible has a, a relatively positive view of government. Government is, we're told in the Bible, is an instrument of God. They're a tool which God uses to bless. They're supposed to be a deterrent to evil. And we're actually explicitly told that we should pray for our government. So God values government. But the government should not be our ultimate source of hope. Look at what happens to Israel's king. Verse 7 says, Samaria's king, that's the capital city of Israel, Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The idea is the king is just this small little twig bobbing up and down on the vastness of the sea until it's waterlogged and it sinks to the bottom of the ocean. V verse 3, this is now Israel speaking after they've been destroyed. Hosea is putting words in their mouth. He's saying, this is what you're going to say. Now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, even if we had one, what could he do for us? The king's captured. We are captured. We're, we've been taken away by Assyria. Assyria is far worse than we are. They're way more wicked than we are. What justice can we put in place now? Do you ever notice how much hope there is come election time? Right? Every four years, there's this just spike in our hearts just that go like, maybe this is the year. Maybe, maybe now we finally get that person in leadership who's going to save us. Right? They have the right platform. It looks good. Man, this is the way forward. All, all is going to change. And then four years come around. 
And this is the year then, right? And, and, the, and the cycle ju- just re- repeats itself. We, we have these hopes and dreams. And I, I'm not saying that a government, a right and good government can't bring improvement. I'm not saying we shouldn't vote and use our God-given rights to, to choose those who are in a position of authority. But no matter how good a government is, they are limited in their ability to bring about good. They're limited in their wisdom to bring about good and change and justice. Um, I'm not sure if you um, saw this uh, in the news recently. Um, just before the end of last year, a woman by the name of Ermgard Ferkner was uh, found guilty in a German court of law. Ermgard was 97 years old, 97 years old when she was found guilty. She was accused of being complicit in the death of murdering thousands of Jews in a concentration camp. It's estimated that at that very concentration camp, 65,000 Jews were murdered. Um, When the trial began, uh, she went on the run. I have a, this I find just a little amusing. A 96-year-old woman literally tried to run away from her nursing home. She succeeded. She, and she, she, she fled for her life. The cops had to chase her down and, and bring her to a court of law. Now, here's the dilemma, though. Um, when she committed those crimes, she's a teenager, And so based off of the German legal system, she was tried in a juvenile court of law. Is that fair? She's complicit in murdering thousands upon thousands of individuals. Okay, so you get a life sentence. (laughs) She's escaped justice for 80 years. She's 97 years old. What good is a life sentence? Also, you can't bring back those people that lost their lives. What good is justice? Give me the greatest legal system in the world. Where's the justice in that? In the end, also, uh, there was no repentance in her. The, The most she said was, I'm sorry I ended up in that place at the wrong time. Wrong place, wrong time. That's, that's the best she gave. Where is the justice in that? Even if we had a king, Israel says, what good could they do for us? Kings are good. Governments are good. Leaders and systems are good, but they should not be our ultimate source of hope. They do not have the wisdom to perfectly punish evil. They do not have the ability to save those who are hurting. And they do not have the ability to remove evil from the human heart. But there is one who does. But before we get to their third point. Number three, the impotence of merit. The impotence of merit. Let let me explain here. Um, One of the ways we can go about achieving the dreams we want in life is just through our own actions, through our own effort. Right? If I just live a certain way, well, that would mean I, get, I deserve something or, or my, I should merit something back from life, from, from the universe. Now, there is a religious form of this. We, we see this in verse 4. So verse 4 reads, this is Israel. They utter mere words. With empty oaths, they make covenant. So, so here's Israel, and they're, they're doing the whole religious thing. They're making promises to God. They're, they're jumping through the religious hoops. And they're hoping that God rewards them in return. God, we do this for God. We just say the right words, do the right actions. Then God will give us what we really want. Right? They're, they're using God. Please hear this. They don't want God. They just want what God can give them. Which is why Hosea says they're mere words. They're empty oaths. In in verse 2, he says, their heart is false. They they have the wrong motives. Um, In Peter Schaeffer's play, Amadeus, uh, the musical or the play follows the musician Salieri. Salieri is a a 
fantastic up-and-coming composer. He's great. The, the spotlight is all on Salieri. And so Salieri makes a bargain with God. He says this, I would offer up secretly the proudest prayer a boy could think of. Lord, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music and be celebrated myself. Make me famous through the world. Dear God, make me immortal. After I die, let people speak my name forever with love for what I wrote. In return, God, I'm going to do something for you here. I will give you my chastity, my industry, my deepest humility every hour of my life. And I will help my fellow man all I can. Amen and amen. And then Mozart shows up. Salieri is gifted. Mozart is a genius. And the spotlight begins to turn. And now it's on Mozart. And Salieri is furious. Because he made promises to God. He was devoted to God. And yet now Mozart is getting all the attention and Mozart isn't even living the way that he thinks he ought to. He doesn't have the same level of devotion to God. So, so listen to this. Salieri says, it was incomprehensible. Here I was denying all my natural lust in order to deserve God's gift. And there was Mozart indulging his in all directions. Even though engaged to be married, can you believe it? And no rebuke at all. Now, Salieri is really betraying what his true motives are. He wasn't obeying God for God's sake. He wasn't devoted to God for God's sake. He just did it to get something back from God. I deserve it. I, it's me at the center here. It's, I deserve it. I merit it. I earn it. It's me. And Israel does the same thing. God, just give it back to me. And notice what God does. He says, verse 4, So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The vine was abundant, but now spring up weeds and they choke out any sort of semblance of religious deed. There's no actual life in that vine. It's choked out. Please hear this. You cannot earn God's favor. You cannot merit God's goodness towards you. So there's the religious form, but there's also the irreligious form. There's a secular version to this. See, if God doesn't give me what I want, then I'll go find it on my own. I'll do things my way, which is what actually Salieri responds with when God no longer seems to be blessing him. Salieri says this to God. He says, from now on, God, we are enemies, you and I. You're my enemy, God. And so what does Salieri does? He goes and he spends the rest of the play trying to destroy Mozart. He tries to kill him. He takes matters into his own hands, right? I make my own rules then, fine. So, so this is how this looks in our life. We go, you know what? Faithfulness to my spouse uh, it's not really bringing me the happiness I want. I, I think I can take matters into my own hands, find some other person to love me, and then things will go my way. Or, or we go, um, I'll be, I've been honest at work, I've worked hard, and I didn't get that raise, God, didn't get that promotion, so fine, I'll, I'll cheat and I'll steal, and I'll undercut those who are above me. Right? So that's actually what Israel does in return, right? They hedge their bets here. So, so on one hand, they go, God, we're going to do the whole covenant thing. We'll make our vows to you. But on the other hand, Israel goes, we're also going to have this other God, this God, Baal, and we're going to find him, we're going to serve him, and we're just going to make sure that Baal gives us what we really want. And look what happens to this God. Verse 5, the inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf. That's Baal, the bull god. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of beth Aven. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests, those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. What happens to it? The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria, 
as a tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. I don't know if you've ever been carried before. It's humiliating. You're just helpless. That's what Hosea says comes of this God. Carried off to Assyria as a, as a reward, as a, as a victory piece for having defeated Israel. But this thing, that's all it is. It, it's a thing. Verse 6 says this, the thing itself shall be carried to Israel. Verse 5, for it has departed from them. It's just a thing. It, it's just an it. The, the contrast here is made to verse 2. It says, the Lord will break down their altars. Literally there, it's, it's the personal pronoun he. So you got an it and you got a he. Don't put your things, don't put your trust in it. Don't, don't put your trust in, in things. Um, there's an early church uh, letter uh, written to a man named Diognetus. This Christian is writing to Diognetus and he's trying to convince him not to put his hope in idols, in things, in its. And he says this, it's fascinating. He says, come and contemplate, not with your eyes only, but with your understanding. Think for a second. The substance and the form of those whom you declare and deem to be gods. Is not one of them a stone similar to that on which we tread? Is not a second brass in no way superior to those vessels which are constructed for our ordinary use? We make bowls out of them. Is not a third wood and that already rotten? Is not a fourth silver which needs a man to watch it lest it be stolen? How strong is that God? Is not a fifth iron consumed by rust? Is not a sixth earthenware in no degree more valuable than that which is formed for the humblest purposes? Literally, it's a potty. Are not all deaf? Are they not all blind? Are they not all without life? Are they not all destitute of feeling? Are they not incapable of motion? Are they not all prone to decay? Are they not all corruptible? Don't put your hope in it's. Please, don't look to your beauty to give you some sort of worth. Don't look to your kids as an ultimate source of having value and purpose. Don't put your security in your health. Don't put your value and your worth in your knowledge. They can all be taken away from you. They can all be carried off. They can all be laid in a tomb. Don't trust in created things. Don't trust in what you can accomplish. Lastly then, so what do we trust in? What do we hope in? Fourthly, the power of the Messiah. We trust in the Messiah. Verse 8 says this. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars. And they shall say to the mountains, cover us. And to the hills, fall on us. Hosea says judgment is going to be so bad. This Assyrian invasion is going to be so bad. Your shame is going to be so bad. Suffering is going to be so bad. You are going to beg for there to be an earthquake so that the mountains can fall on you and put you out of your misery. Um, what has the ability to save us from that anguish then? What, what takes away that pain? I think there's a hint here. It, in... Um, these words in verse 8 are words that are repeated in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation says this. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free. So it's not just Israel now. He's talking to all people who have rejected God. They hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand it? And notice this time, there's the addition of that phrase, wrath of the lamb. That lamb is the son of God. It's... Jesus. It's the Messiah. 
See, there is this realization that what we ultimately need saving from is the wrath of God. You see, we not only have rebelled against God by violating his commandments, we've rebelled against God by trusting in other things. When we turn our backs to God and go, it's actually in these things in which I trust, it's these things I hope in, it's these things which I believe can satisfy all my dreams and longings, that's an act of rebellion against the God who made us. Against the God who made us for himself. And because of that, we deserve to bear the wrath of the Lamb. But God, because of his great love for us, took the wrath and judgment not only that Israel deserved, but that we deserved. See, see, God did not tear down the altar. God actually climbed on top of the altar. God became the lamb that was broken and crushed and destroyed. Jesus was not carried. He actually carried the cross. Jesus bore our shame. He was hung naked on the cross. It was Jesus' body who was broken. And it was Jesus who died and was laid inside of that mountain. Why? So that those who trust in him might be forgiven. So that Jesus could actually bear our wrath in our place. And that we could be declared God's children. We no longer have to endure the wrath of the lamb because the lamb endured it on our behalf. And so if we trust in that, if we trust in Jesus's finished work, two things happen. There's an objective change. We're actually saved now, but there's also a subjective change in us, right? I want to trust in him now. All of a sudden, if I realize, my goodness, God gave himself for us? Jesus left heaven's throne to come down and die. Man, I don't need money. My God's got me. If heaven was emptied of its greatest treasure, do I not also believe God will give me everything else I need? My security isn't found in what I own and my wealth. Also, if Jesus truly died on the cross, if the wrath of God was poured out on him, then I know justice will be accomplished. It's in the cross that perfect mercy and perfect justice are both accomplished simultaneously. So I don't have to be my own avenger. I can trust in God. God will make all things right. And if he died for me long before I ever sought him, while I was still in rebellion against him, then it's not about what I do. It doesn't matter if I don't live up. It's by grace that we've been saved through faith. We come and all we do is receive the gift. So let me end with this quote. Augustine was a early church father. He was one of the leaders of the Christian church after the apostles had passed away. And he says this, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Constantly looking, right? He's saying, I'm restless. There's something, God, be something out there that will satisfy me. He goes, God, we're never going to find rest until we find it in God. So how do you do that? You just try harder. Okay, I'm just going to consciously decide. Okay, God, I'm just going to do it. Trust you. No, he goes, no, you look at him. Look at God. See how he loves you. He says this. this is, that's how he starts his book. This is how he ends his book. How you loved us, O Father, who do not spare your only son, but handed him over for us. How you loved us, Lord Jesus, who though equal with the Father became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. For our sake, your son was both victor and victim. And the victor, because he was the victim, for our sake, he was both sacrificing priest and sacrifice. Priest, because he was the sacrifice. He was born from you and yet acted as our slave, thereby turning us from your slaves into your sons. That's greatness. That's the God I want to trust in. Let me pray for us. Yes, so Father, expand our understanding of who you are. Lord, that's the only way that 
our hearts will be drawn off of the things of this world and actually put onto you. God, help us to see how much you loved us, how much you paid so that we could be forgiven. Lord, I pray that that would penetrate deep into our hearts. Would we no longer live for ourselves, but live for you? Father, I pray if there are any here who are clinging on, Lord, to things of this world, looking to them to satisfy them. Father, I pray that they would see you as more satisfying, that see you as better, more worthy, more reliable. So Father, do this work in us for our joy and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.